boys and girls, thank you for leading us in that. What beautiful truth that we're celebrating this morning. You have just proclaimed in song for us. I want you to find 1 Peter chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app on your phone. We're going to take a break from our journey through Ephesians this morning for Easter Sunday for our celebration of the resurrection of Christ. As you're finding 1 Peter 1, I want to think, get you to think back to that song the boys and girls just sang. It has some really deep questions in it. Do you hear them say, do you feel the world is broken? And boys and girls, what did you say? Yeah. It is, yeah. Is the world broken? It is. Or do you feel it broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you say we do? We do. And do you wish you could see it all made new? And they answer again, we do. We proclaimed in song the reality of living in a fallen world with much brokenness. When God made the world, friends, it was perfect. There was no sin. There was no pain. There was no sadness. There was no death. There was no brokenness in any way. But the perfect world God made became corrupted. It became broken because sin, which is disobedience to God's standards, because sin came into the world. When the very first people, Adam and Eve, listened to Satan, who's a very real spiritual being, who's opposed to God and his purposes, when they listened to his temptation, when they followed that temptation, when they sinned against God, brokenness came into the world, and it's been here ever since. And so we sing, and all of our hearts resonate with what the kids just sing. We feel the world is broken. We feel the shadows deepen, and we wish it was all made new. And for many of you, you live with that brokenness. Even this Easter, you feel that brokenness in some way, whether it's health, whether it's broken relationships, whether it's dreams that are broken, so much more. But the friends, the reality is if we're not experiencing brokenness today, we have experienced it in the past, and unfortunately we will experience it again before we see Jesus face to face. That's why we sang in that song, is all creation groaning, and we said it is. So when I ask you the question this Easter morning, can we have hope in the midst of the brokenness of the world? Can we have hope in the midst of the brokenness? And the answer is, in fact, we can have hope. and has everything to do with Easter Sunday, with the resurrection. So the question becomes, how can we have hope in the midst of all the brokenness? So we come to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. I want to see we can have hope in the midst of the brokenness and has everything to do with the resurrection. So as we read 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, I want you to look for two things in our text today. First of all, what is the basis for our hope? Where do we find hope in the midst of brokenness? And then second of all, what are we hoping will happen? So what is the basis of our hope and what are we hoping will happen? So we come to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? What an incredible privilege we have that God has not hidden himself from us, but revealed himself clearly to us in his Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. If you're a visitor, words will also be on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, those tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. They do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation 
of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are filled with thankfulness. This Easter Sunday morning, this Resurrection Sunday, Father, we have proclaimed your goodness. We have proclaimed the glories of the gospel. We proclaimed, Lord Jesus, what you've done in conquering death and rising from the dead. And Lord, I pray that this Sunday morning, in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, that God, you would fill us anew with hope, with wonder, with awe at who you are and for all that you have done. And I pray this morning your word would come alive to us. Lord, I know there's so many in this room who are carrying the weight of the brokenness of the world on their shoulders today. And I pray today that you might fill their hearts afresh with hope. Not a hope we generate ourselves, but a hope that comes from you. A hope in you, Lord Jesus. And I pray you'd fill our hearts afresh today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So can we, how can we have hope in the midst of brokenness? I want you to see one thing from our text today, and it's simply this. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope that our sins are forgiven and that our future with God is sure. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope that our sins are forgiven and our future with God is sure. He gives us a hope, not a hope that we generate, not a hope that's just, I'm going to try harder and have my white-knuckle determination to get through this, but a hope that comes from heaven, a hope that comes from Christ because of his resurrection. But it's a hope that tackles brokenness. Because his hope about, he's going to tackle the brokenness of my heart, the brokenness of my sin, and he's going to forgive me of my sin. There's also hope about the brokenness of this world that we live in, because he's giving us an assurance that our future with him is sure. He's going to tackle the brokenness within and the brokenness without, all through his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope that our sins are forgiven, and our future with God is sure. So let's start with the foundation of our hope, because this is where it all is. It's all about Jesus's Resurrection. Go back to verse 3 of our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope comes through the resurrection. What are we talking about with the resurrection? Well, to understand the resurrection, we have to take a step back to what happened on Friday, what we celebrated Friday night in our Good Friday service. And what you see is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This is Paul writing to the people in Corinth. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Like, this is very significant. This is very important. We must take notice. And what's so important? He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Such a succinct summary reminds us that Christ died for our sins. And I want to remind us, because we see crosses everywhere. We think about the cross, and it gets so sanitized today for us. But the cross was the cruelest form of execution ever invented. They would strip a person to where they had no clothes. They would beat their backs so that the flesh was exposed and they were in incredible pain. And then they would tie them on this wooden post with their hands stretched to where they couldn't breathe well. And they would have to try to push up to try to be able to breathe. And all the rough wood in the back would just go on their backs. And, and eventually in the pain, they got too weak to be able to push up to breathe. And they would die by suffocating, hanging there in the sun, exposed. Christ died on the cross for our sins in the cruelest form of death that could have ever been imagined by mankind. That's what happened on Friday. Also on Friday, if we go to the next verse, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he was buried. They took him off the cross after he was dead, and they put him in a tomb that no one had ever been in before, and they put a stone over the door, and the hole to the tomb, and they sealed it, and they put guards outside of it. That was Friday, but thankfully that's not the end of the story. Because Sunday comes, what we're celebrating today, and that's the rest of that verse, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Several women go to the tomb and he's not there. They go tell the disciples. Disciples go and they find the tomb is empty because he's not there. He has been risen from the dead. And friends, this is literal. This is historical. This is not just some myth or fairy tale to make people feel good. This actually happened in history 
And I love how Paul reminds us of that in the very next two verses, in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians. He says that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Okay, well, what if the disciples are making up? No, go into verse 6 and look at what happens. Then he, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who was killed on a cross, put in a tomb on the third day raised, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Friends, there were so many people at the time who did not want Jesus to be there. They're the ones who just killed him on Friday. And yet when he rises from the dead, there's no way to prove it. There's an empty tomb, and he appears to hundreds and hundreds of people over the next 40 days before he ascends back to heaven. And he appears to them during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. We have great confidence in what we believe, partly because this happened in history with eyewitnesses recording it for us in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. There's an empty tomb, and we can have confidence in that Jesus rose from the dead. So how does that historical event of 2,000 years ago help us in the midst of our brokenness today? Well, this literal historical resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. Look back at verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, friends, when we hear the word hope, often our minds go to some type of wishful optimism. I hope my sports team will win this year. I really hope that person will stop being mad at me. Or I really hope my school project goes well. Or I really hope I get... We use hope a lot in our culture. It's just this wishful optimism and nothing more. When you see the word hope in the Bible, it's not a wishful optimism. In the Bible, the word hope is a sure confidence. That what it said is not just, I kind of hope this will happen. We know with certainty for sure that this is actually going to happen. Because it's in God who never changes, who never lies. A God who always keeps his promises, who always keeps his word. And when he says that we have hope, we have a sure confidence that what God has said will certainly happen. But this hope is even more amazing because notice the phrase is described here. We are born again to not just a hope, but to a living hope. We not just have a sure confidence, we have a living sure confidence. One of the world doesn't mean that it's a living hope. It means it's genuine. It's alive. It comes from God himself. It can be trusted. It's not just, well, I'm hoping this will be okay. It is genuine. But even more, something that's living is growing. Kids who are alive are growing, right? Your plants outside are growing. The trees are growing and putting out a lot of pollen right now. Things that are alive are growing. And we have a living hope. We have a growing hope. That means as we walk with the Lord, as we know God, if we're truly a believer, then year by year by year, our hope should be getting deeper and richer and fuller. We should have a greater confidence in these promises of God with each passing year. So we need to pause at times and go, do I have more confidence in God now than I had a year ago? Do I have more hope in God now than even 10 years ago? Do I see my hope growing because it's living? But then, friends, what is our living hope in? What are we having a confidence in? I think our text shows us we can have confidence in two things. What God already has done for me and what God still will do for me. Past tense, what has God done for me? He's tackled the brokenness within me. He's tackled the brokenness of my own sin. Go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again. His great mercy. What is mercy, friends? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve? Well, we've all sinned. We've all offended God. We've all broken his standards, not only in doing wrong things, but not doing the good to which he's called us. We've all missed the mark. That's what sin literally means. We've missed God's mark. We've missed his standards. So what do we deserve? We deserve what happened to Christ on Friday. 
We deserve that punishment he took because on the cross we see the holy wrath of God, his judgment against sin. That is what we deserve. God is so holy and so perfect he cannot overlook sin. God can't wink at sin and go, well, I like that person, it'll be okay. If God did that, he would cease to be holy and cease to be God. God is perfect and his holy perfection cannot handle sin, cannot be in the presence of sin. So either we pay for it, which takes an eternity, or Jesus takes it in our place. That's why when Jesus is on the cross on Friday, he cries out, it is finished. Those words are so significant to us. What is finished? The Father's wrath has been satisfied. The payment has been made for our sins so that we can have this great mercy because our sins are so great. We need such a great mercy. But how do we know that the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for us? That's where the resurrection comes in. Look back at verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection shows us, like we sang this morning, that Jesus has defeated death. The resurrection shows us that the Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place, that the payment has been made and the Father has accepted it. Friends, without the resurrection, we have no confidence. In 1 Corinthians 15, still look at what it says in verse 17. I love how Paul describes this. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith, well, at least you tried hard and is a good example to others. No. At least you were moral. No. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? What's the next word? Futile. It's stupid. It's pointless. If Christ has not literally died and risen again, your faith is pointless. It's futile. And you are still in your sins. The resurrection is what shows us that he has taken our place. I love how it goes on in the next two verses, in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Friends, this is not, well, well, I hope this is all true, and I'm just going to bank on it, and maybe it is, but if not, it's okay, at least I tried hard. No, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are the most pitied of all people on the planet. Because we're putting all of our hope and confidence in something the world sees as foolish. But we know Christ did rise from the dead, and we have confidence in that. Therefore, we know the Father has accepted his payment in our place. The wrath of God has been satisfied, and we can be forgiven and receive this great mercy. And friends, that shows us that he's tackling the brokenness within us. He sees us in our brokenness and all of our sin. He loves us so much he does not leave us there. But he comes as a baby in a manger, lives a perfect life to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. He goes to a cross as an innocent victim and allows himself to be sacrificed on that cross to take the punishment we deserve. If he didn't do that, we would have to bear it ourselves. And he takes it in our place. And he, Jesus tackles the brokenness of our own hearts and forgives us of all of our sin and loves us so much he doesn't leave us there. And like we've seen in Ephesians, week by week he begins to grow us, sanctify us, and make us more and more like him. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope that our sins are forgiven. He's tackled the brokenness of our own hearts. And that's amazing, but there's even more. His resurrection also shows us that our future with God is sure. Our future with God is sure. Look back at how verses 3 and 4 flow together here in 1 Peter 1. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to, this shows what this hope is, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We see the word inheritance in Scripture as always pointing to something that's still to come. So in the Old Testament, the inheritance that people were longing for was the land. When the Jewish people would get their land, when they would get the promised land, that was their inheritance. But in the New Testament, inheritance is even far beyond that and far superior because it's always talking about heaven, 
So I was talking about eternity. When you see the word inheritance in the New Testament, put in your mind eternity, God's presence forever there. It's telling us that there's a time coming that we will forever be in God's presence, we'll forever be in a place of perfection where there is no brokenness, that that time is coming. And notice how this future of ours, if we're followers of Christ, is described. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I think Paul or Peter here is trying to help us get something in our mind. The future that we have with God is something far beyond we have in the brokenness of this earth. It's, first of all, it's imperishable. It can't decay. It can't break. It can't wear out. All the stuff we seem to invest in this earth, it all breaks, it fades, it wears out. From our bodies to our houses to our cars, right? It all starts falling apart with time. But what this thing that God has promised us is still to come is imperishable. It can't break. It can't wear out. The second word he says is not only imperishable, it's undefiled. It's unstained by sin. It's perfect. There'll be no temptation, no sin, no sadness. There'll be no brokenness. And the last one he says is not just imperishable, undefiled. It's also unfading. It will last forever. Trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years from now, it'll still be there. And it won't be any less shiny, any less brilliant, any less amazing than it is when we first see it. What awaits every true follower of Christ is eternity in God's presence. When we see him with unveiled faces, when we see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory, when we see him for who he is and we are freed from temptation, free from sin, free from sickness, free from strife, free from all the brokenness of the world, a time when every wrong will be made right, even when we get resurrection bodies and our bodies are restored, when everything is made new. This is something that is surely happening because it's God's unchanging promise. It's an inheritance for every believer that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, how can we be sure, for instance, that we'll get there? How do we be sure that this is actually going to happen, that the brokenness of this life is only for a season, that something much greater is still coming for us? And our hope is not in us. This is, our hope is not that we're going to try hard enough to get there. Notice the terminology in these verses we've just read of where our confidence comes from. Verse 3, in the middle of it, says, He has caused us to be born again. It's God's work. He's the one doing it. It's not us causing ourselves to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. Verse 4, I love how it's described here. It's kept in heaven for you. In the Greek tense here, the word kept is passive, meaning you don't do it. It's done for you. He's the one keeping it for us. We don't keep our inheritance and hope to get there. He's the one securely keeping it, holding it for us. We just receive it. Verse 5 carries on the same idea of God's power. Who by God's power are being guarded? It can't get much clearer. It's God's power that's guarding us. Well, the, the word guard here is a Greek word that's used in two different ways. Sometimes this word guard is used to mean like of a garrison in a city, like a military term. And it's where, what keeps the enemy out. And God guards us in that way. He keeps us from falling away because of pressures of the world, the brokenness of the world. But this word guard also can mean to keep someone from escaping. It's using the time to think of a prisoner and the guard keeps them from escaping. God even guards us so our own sin, our own hearts don't deceive us and lead us Away. He guards us from without and he guards us from within. And it's a beautiful picture of him protecting us all the way till we receive our inheritance. And how does he do it? He does it with his power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power that's now actively at work guarding us, if we're followers of Christ, to make sure we receive that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that's kept in heaven for us. Now that's an important clarification we need here. The fact that this day is coming when there's no brokenness doesn't mean that God promises no brokenness now. Rather, it's actually quite the opposite of that. 
it's easy to stop at verse 5 in this text because it looks so amazing to us. Look at all that God has done for me. He's given me mercy. He's tackled the brokenness of my heart. Look, he's given me an eternity with no brokenness. This is all amazing. But there's more to the text. Verse 6. And verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. For a little while. It's just an expression that means in this life. It says you will be grieved. You're going to feel pain. You're going to feel hurt as you go through trials. And not just trials, but trials of various kinds. You've heard me say before on text, like, this is not the promise I've ever seen framed and hung over anyone's sofa when I come visit your house. Like This is not what we cling to, but God and his goodness to us tells us that in this life we will be grieved by trials of many kinds. Unless we get discouraged, we see that these trials are not happenstance. The trials that we encounter in this life are not pointless. God who is good and God who is sovereign redeems the trials for something amazing. Look at verse 7. What does God do with the brokenness in this world? He doesn't take it away from us, but what does he do? Verse 7. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is incredible. Not only has God told us that the day's coming when there'll be no brokenness, but between now and then, you're going to have a lot of brokenness in your life. But guess what? I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to take the brokenness. I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to bring great good for you out of it. I'm going to strengthen your faith. I'm going to grow your faith, grow your hope, grow your confidence in the midst of the trials. I'm not going to take them away, but I'm going to redeem them for you. Unless we think that Peter is crazy here and we go, oh, I don't like Peter. I know there's a reason I don't like First Peter. Unless, surely someone else says something different in the Bible. James tells us the same thing. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, I want you to see this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Notice that the word's not if. The next word is when you meet trials of various kinds. He's going to say, For you know, here's the reason you can find joy in the trials of this life and the brokenness of life. For you know that the testing of your faith, wait, wait, the same thing that Peter's saying here. God's testing our faith, God's redeeming the brokenness to do something in our lives. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He goes on in verse 4 to explain what he means. And let steadfastness have its full effects, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God takes the brokenness of this world, he forgives us of the brokenness of our own heart, our sin, but then he continues to allow the brokenness around us to grow our faith, to grow our confidence in him. Maybe think, okay, well, I don't like Peter or James now. Surely someone else says something different. Well, let's see what Paul says. When Paul is writing in Romans chapter 5, how does, how does the apostle Paul tackle this? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Oh, no, here we go again. Now we've got Peter, James, and we've got Paul saying the same thing here. We rejoice in our sufferings, and why can we rejoice in them? Because they're not meaningless, because God in his sovereign goodness is bringing good out of them, knowing that the suffering produces endurance. Same way we saw a steadfastness. So going in verse 4, and endurance produces character. That doesn't sound like fun, but God loves us so much he's going to produce character in our lives through the brokenness around us. And character produces hope. And then verse 5 and hope, wait, wait, God's bringing great growing my hope in the midst of brokenness? Yeah, he's given me hope, and then he's growing my hope through the brokenness around me. And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. See, me in the midst of the brokenness of the world, God's promised that, yeah, one day I'm going to deliver you from that, but in the meantime, I'm going to leave you in that brokenness, and I'm not promising to take in the brokenness away, but I am promising I'm going to pour my love into your heart, I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit, so as you walk through the brokenness of this life, I will grow your character. I will grow your steadfastness. I will grow your endurance. And I will grow your hope in the midst of it. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope. 
that our sins are forgiven and our future with God is sure. That's an amazing promise. So how do we gain it? How do we claim that promise? How do we experience that promise? Well, he tells us back in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice this phrase, who by God's power, okay, it's all God's work. It's God's power. You're being guarded through what? Through what? Faith. We're being guarded through faith. God gives the mercy. God calls us to be born again. God keeps our future secure. God guards us. God uses trials to grow us. He says, I want you to do one thing. I want you to have faith. What is faith? Well, I think it's explained for us in verse 8. So jump down to verse 8 of our text. What is faith? We hear that word a lot, and we think of it in terms of belief, which it is. But faith is much more robust than that. Look at how verse 8 describes faith. There's three different verbs here, I think, that are a picture of faith for us. Though you've not seen him, you love him. They do not do, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So what is faith? Faith is love, believing, and rejoicing in Christ. Now, in the Greek, these three verbs here are not commands. In this particular text, we're not commanded to love God. We're not commanded to believe in Him. We're not commanded to rejoice in Him. In the Greek, this is a tense called the indicative tense. That means it's describing for us what happens in our lives when we believe. And so the command here is have faith. And if how you know you have faith, this is what God produces when you have faith. What does He produce in our life? If we have genuine faith... It's not because we prayed a prayer. It's not because we walked down an aisle. It's not because we got baptized. not because we joined a church. not because we started serving. not because we got in church leadership. not because we started giving to the church. That doesn't produce faith. That's not faith. Faith is something that's going to be manifest in terms of our love for God, our believing in God, and our rejoicing in God. Like, look back at verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. True faith, friends, true belief in Christ means we love him. We long to know Him. We long to be in His presence. Our heart wants to be with Him. Our hearts wants to worship Him, to know Him, to experience Him, not just now, but for all eternity. True faith is a love for God. If there's no love for God, there is no true faith, no matter how many externals we've done. It's not just love, though. Look at the next phrase of verse 8. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. What does it mean by believe here? Belief means to trust, to put your confidence in. So true faith in Christ, again, is not all these external things. It means in my heart, I believe him. In my heart, I trust him. In my heart, I want to hear his word and I want to follow it. I want to trust that all he has said is true. But there's one more here in verse 8. It says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like how many adjectives can Peter use here to describe what true joy there is if we really know God. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is joy? It's an experience deep within us of great delight. Joy is an experience deep within us of great delight. He's saying if you really believe, if you really have faith, you will find in your heart a deep experience of great delight no matter how much brokenness is happening all around you. Faith here is described in terms of our delighting in God and His purposes and His goodness. So friends, I want to ask you on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, do you have faith in Christ like that? Not have you walked the aisle, not have you prayed certain prayers, not have you joined the church, but have you had a, have you, not just have you, but do you presently have faith in God, a love for Him, a rejoicing in Him, a trusting in Him? If not, what better day than Resurrection Sunday to cry out to the Lord what it said in verse 3, Lord, would you cause me to be born again to a living hope? 
But for those of you who do believe, who do know for sure that you have faith in Christ, that you're trusting in him and him alone, like Sam confessed earlier in the baptism. If you do believe, I want to ask you, do you have hope today? Because you are, you have, you may be presently, and you certainly will still face brokenness in your life. And do you have hope in the midst of the brokenness as a follower of God? Hope that he's tackled the brokenness in your own heart. Hope, a confidence, a sure confidence that you know you're forgiven by God and loved by God. Do you have hope and confidence that God is changing you? You know you're his child, that he loves you so much he's not going to leave you in your sin, but he's going to grow you and sanctify you and be changing you to be more like him. Do you have confidence and hope in what's to come that you know you will spend eternity with him? Not because of anything you've done, but because of his great mercy. Do you have a sure confidence that you will forever be with him with an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? And friends, do you have hope in the midst of the brokenness? Knowing that God is taking those painful situations, those trials you're in, and is not promising to deliver you from them until you get to heaven, but do you have hope and confidence that a good, loving God is going to redeem even the brokenness you're in today? for his glory, and for your good. Friends, we started with some of the quotes from the song the kids sang, and I want to end with some of those. Because that song that we sang not only recognized the brokenness of the world, it was filled with so much hope. We asked, does the Father truly love us? And the boys and girls shouted, he does. Does the Spirit move among us? And we said, he does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, forever hold he loves? He does. Don't miss that imagery. That Jesus, our Messiah, will forever hold those he loves. He's holding us now. He's rescued us with his great mercy. He will hold us through all the trials and brokenness of this life until we get to that day that we receive that here is Jesus, the Messiah, forever holds he loves. He does. And that ultimate hope that we sing about, and does our God intend to dwell again with us? And he does. Friends, the day is coming for every true follower of Christ when we see our creator, the great I am, Jesus himself face to face with an unveiled face, and we see him in all of his glory and majesty and splendor. We see beings around his throne falling down on their faces, worshiping him. We see the saints who've all gone before, worshiping him, proclaiming how holy he is and proclaiming holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty. That day is awaiting us. Do we have hope in that because of the resurrection? And do we have hope that even in the hardships between now and then, that he's going to grow our hope so that we are excited and ready for that day. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for Easter celebrations. We're thankful for the resurrection. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you and your incredible love for us loved us so much. You did not leave us in our sins. You did not treat us as our sin deserved. But rather, you came, you lived a perfect life, you fulfilled the law, and you went to that cruel Roman cross where you allowed yourself to be executed as an innocent victim, so that our sins could be paid for, so we wouldn't have to pay them for all eternity. God, I pray today that you would renew our hearts all and wonder at what we're just celebrating and singing about. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, doesn't have a genuine living faith that leads them to love you and rejoice in you and to have confidence in your word that is true. God, would you breathe that into them today? Would you cause them today to be born again to a living hope? Lord, for each of these precious brothers and sisters who do love you, who rejoice in you, who have confidence in your word, God, I pray that today you would fill them afresh with hope. 
But we know the world is hard. We know the world is full of brokenness and trials and tribulations and suffering. Lord, though our hearts long for that day when all is made new, Lord, help us today have renewed hope that you're working, Lord, for your glory and our good in the midst of the brokenness. Help us keep eternity in view and see your purposes, even on the hard days, whatever they are. Lord, would you build up your saints, your people here at Gateway, where they might this week have fresh rejoicing and your goodness to them as you hold them and persevere them, not just today, but until eternity. Lord, we will give you the praise for all that you have done and will do. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?